Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. This is the second episode in a series on the book of Revelation called What are the Politics of Jesus? Each week, we're working off of Aristotle and Augustine to ask how Revelation teaches us concrete public actions Christians are called to do for the good of the cities and communities they find themselves in. This is at the heart of what politics are meant to be, and this is how we follow Jesus as our King. This week, we're dealing with the seven churches in Revelation 2-3, to and I'm encouraged to note that they, like us, seem to face many similar temptations. There were swirling pressures around trade guilds, pagan festivals, and persecution that often invited the churches to affirm, blend, or break under the politics of Caesar. But where I want to take us is the question, what practice today would help us to truly live out the politics of Jesus? What practice would help us to resist the pressures of capitalism, idolatry, and power that form the politics of Caesar today? And what is Jesus saying to us today through these ancient letters offered to the seven churches of Asia? Let's dive in. contemporary intellectuals I've been reading a lot of is Yuval Noah Harari. Harari is an Israeli historian trained at Oxford who's written the highly popular book Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Harari is one of those big picture thinkers. He likes to cut out broad swaths to paint new perspectives from a secular viewpoint about the clues from our past that could teach us how to engage the future. In his follow-up book to Sapiens called Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, Harari wrestles with some of the more terrifying elements of what he sees coming down the pipe. Things like biotechnology, companies growing larger and larger because of big data, and emerging global powers like China and Russia. Harari is trying to give you his two cents on the problem, and I think it's quite a good two cents to reflect on. So when it comes to the politics of Jesus, and the following two chapters of Revelation that we're going to look at, Harari is going to give us this viewpoint on the current political moment we're in. Harari says this, Modernity is a deal. All of us sign up to this deal on the day we were born, and it regulates our lives until the day we die. Very few of us can ever rescind or transcend this deal. He then says, The deal is surprisingly simple and could be summarized in a single phrase. Humans are to give up meaning in exchange for power. Now, I realize that sounds drastic because it is. Harari, even as a secular atheist, has been staring intently at human history, trying to understand the politics of the moment we're in. He calls it modernity, and he sees it as a kind of deal, a contract almost, that tells all of us if we simply give up what Harari calls meaning, in exchange, humankind gets access to what they feel seems like unlimited power. Now, if you've been reading any philosophy, you'd notice this claim by Harari is not new. Friedrich Nietzsche famously, a hundred years ago, in his book, often read by college freshmen, called Thus Spake Zarathustra, would boldly claim, God is dead and we have killed him. This phrase is meant to shock us, but Nietzsche is no fool. His point and Harari's point are well worth noting. What happens if politically we live as if God is dead? 
Well, human beings in that circumstance are going to get a lot more power. And to Nietzsche's prophecy, we have gotten a lot more power. We have more and more embraced life as if God is dead. We now hold in the palm of our hands unlimited global access to an unfathomably vast storehouse of knowledge. We have weapons in our political nations that could instantaneously end all of human existence. And we now have individuals who helm corporations more powerful than most nations, so powerful that these corporations sway elections, tilt mental health, and can topple governments. Yet even as we fathom such unprecedented political power in the hands of human beings, Harari is hinting that there may have been a loss, a loss specifically of meaning. Perhaps you've sensed this to be politically true, as you've wrestled with claims by the Democrats and the Republicans, claims from the left and the right, both of which, at the end of the day, when you really walk out their political vision, seem somewhat vapid and empty. Most politics operate on the level of the gut. It's about abortion. It's about racism. It's about Supreme Court justices. It's about freedom. It's about taxes. It's about health care. Yet as the left and right war back and forth over our values and position themselves as superior to each other, the gaping ache that underlies our current political moment is the thing beneath the thing, the question of where meaning is actually to be found. If God is dead and we have killed him, what Nietzsche didn't tell us was that inevitably some other monster would take God's place. When we lose God, we will always look for meaning somewhere else. There's this quote from John Calvin where he said, Man's nature, so to speak, is an idol-making factory. If we have traded power for meaning, at some point our hearts are going to start churning out idols of meaning to look for elsewhere. And when it comes to our politics, we are often drawn to give our allegiances to whatever we think might promise us that meaning, to whatever idol demands our power. So this is actually our dilemma. We have exchanged meaning for power, and we have let politics take over, creating meaning for us. But this is not only our dilemma. In a distinct but connected way, in our study of Revelation, we're going to find Jesus addressing seven churches who have also found themselves struggling with the politics of Caesar. Caesar then, much like Caesar now, was asking for power. If they would simply worship Caesar, if you remember at the time, this is Emperor Domitian, as master and god, then Caesar promises to keep their bellies full, keep their festivals and games running, and keep their people distracted with plenty of idols to cover all their wants and needs. And this very struggle has been pressed onto these seven churches. It's a struggle of politics. It's a struggle for power. And it is a question of worship. So Jesus, as he's speaking to these churches, is going to encourage them in a vision of overcoming the temptations they're facing under the politics of Caesar. In this episode, I'm going to try to trace the temptations of politics, the temptation of idolatry, and the temptation of power, even as we will end with Jesus's politics that are going to call for our overcoming, expressed through our communal fasting. So here's where we're at in our study of Revelation. You may remember that we opened up last episode with an introduction in which John saw this vision of a shock white-haired, flaming-eyed, bronze-legged son of man who tells John he has some things he needs him to write down. What we're going to find is Jesus, 
as sovereign, Jesus as political leader, Jesus as king, writing to these seven churches that he describes as seven lampstands. But the problem is many of these lampstands in the seven churches have stopped to shine all that bright. And it's because as much as power is a modernity dilemma that we will explore more, the search for meaning is universal. And these churches have, we will find, been tempted to give their allegiance to other sources of meaning. You may remember last episode we ended with Revelation 1.20. This is Jesus talking, and this is what he says. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In order to dive into Revelation, let's talk about why John uses the number seven and why these churches are referred to as lampstands. You'll notice in Revelation that lots of numbers come up. This was because in the ancient world, numbers were often symbolic, even when they were literal. If you scan the pages of the Old Testament, you'll notice 3, 12, 40, and 10 come up a lot. They were all thought to be numbers of authority and wholeness. Four is a significant number, which we'll see with the four horsemen, as it's connected to the four winds, the four corners of the earth, including totality. Six will often be used as a significant number to highlight insufficiency or incompleteness. We'll obviously talk more about six when we hit the infamous 666 passage in Revelation. But seven was always seen as a particularly important number of completion, totality, and even perfection. Seven was how many days there were in creation, the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath day, it's a day of rest and fulfillment. Most commentators therefore think that there is a literal and symbolic meaning taking place in John's use of seven. On the one hand, we're going to hear about seven specific historic churches that Jesus is actually talking to directly. Yet on the other hand, to write to seven churches highlights the holistic and universal nature, both of the temptation these churches are facing and the political instruction and guidance Jesus is giving to them that could also be given to us. Each of these seven churches will represent both concrete historic themes, even as they reflect more universal themes that have faced the church, that do face the church, and will continue to face the church as we wait for Jesus to come again. If that's the meaning of seven, why lampstands? Well, there's some biblical richness underneath the surface here, too. The lampstand first shows up in Exodus 25:31, where God is giving instructions on the tabernacle. We're told the lampstand is made of pure gold, purified and tested, and that it was to be fashioned as a tree, with the base and the center shaft representing the trunk and three branches on each side, making, you guessed it, seven total, including the center shaft. Each branch was made to open up like an almond flower, and each flower held an oil lamp. The lamp was to be tended to by Aaron and his sons so that its light would never go out. I mean, come on. This kind of biblical imagery is just too good. Jesus, of course, is playing with it as he talks about a city on a hill that would be the light of the world. Yet the church, more specifically in Revelation, is called a lampstand, blossoming with the first fruits of the spirit and resurrection life that, when tended by Christ, will shine with light for the life of the world. 
This is how John wants us to enter into the imagery of Revelation. You start to bring all of these complex strands together into a glorious culminating tapestry. So here now we're in Revelation 2, 1, and this is how Jesus opens up his first address. He says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. There's this sense, as we pause even on this first verse, that God is painting us a vivid image of the church, the whole church, distinct yet connected, seen through the prism of heaven. Incredibly, Jesus is the one who walks among the seven lampstands that are intended to shine out political lights of meaning to the world. I mean, that is an address. That would change how I view my Sunday morning. It changes how I enter into church. It changes how I see church, even in her incompleteness, as the intended lampstands that Christ is walking among and tending even now. Yet unfortunately, as we're about to discover, those churches and our churches often fail to fulfill their calling to be light to the world. If you have a Bible, I'm going to keep working from Revelation 2 here. There's a lot going on in these seven letters. So I want to offer a big picture framing to help us move through the politics of these seven letters. And I'm going to suggest that in these seven letters, we find three overarching temptations that are representative of the three distinct trials Jesus is writing about to these seven churches. So the first temptation is going to be this. The first temptation is that the church would affirm the politics of Caesar. This is a posture of collaboration with Caesar's power. This is the sacrifice of meaning by allowing the culture and politics of the day to dictate where meaning for the church is found. This especially is going to take place in the fifth church, Sardis, and the seventh church, Laodicea. Both churches are explicitly called to repent. They have gotten into bed with Caesar's vision of power. They have affirmed the Roman message of meaning. Jesus specifically wants them to wake up to the vision of meaning that he himself has offered. This is often the call to those who are struggling with the temptation to affirm the politics of Caesar rather than swear allegiance to the politics of Jesus. We'll look more closely at Jesus' call to Sardis and Laodicea and all who struggle with the draw to fully endorse and affirm the cultural pressures they find around them. Yet the second temptation is more subtle. Many of the churches John writes to are tempted to blend with the politics of Caesar. If all politics are contracts between citizens and governments, the problem for these churches is that they have been made offers, often by false or heretical teachers, who have suggested that the politics of Caesar really have a lot in common with the politics of Jesus. In fact, with some minor adjustments and some economic calibrations, these teachers are offering the church that they could follow Caesar and Jesus together, as long as you give a little bit of compromise and wiggle room on both sides. One sees in Ephesus, the first church, Pergamum, the third church, and Thyatira, the fourth church, all struggling with, on the one hand, their genuine love of Christ and their desire to live out the politics of Jesus in worship and love, with, on the other hand, this gnawing temptation 
to just ever so slightly accommodate and blend with the culture and politics they find themselves in. Most of these churches faced real economic and professional advantages if only they would endorse some aspects of Caesar and pagan worship. Most will be pressured, not only by the government they serve, but also by friends, by neighbors, even by families, to just stop resisting the politics of Caesar so much and to just give in a little bit more. If we're being honest, in America and the West, most of us are here in this second temptation to blend with the politics of Caesar. I think that's a good starting point for us to acknowledge. Most of us struggle with this blended nature of our political commitments. Most of us feel, even though we truly desire to worship Jesus as Lord, that there is a part of us that would just move smoother through life if we also worship Caesar a little bit too. Do we serve Caesar or do we serve Jesus? We'll look closely at Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira, and some of the realities of guild parties, economic incentives, and the pressures of capitalism on our culture today. Yet the final temptation is quite simply to be broken by the politics of Caesar. Only two churches, the Church of Smyrna, the second church Jesus writes to, and the church in Philadelphia, the sixth church, will not receive any correction or rebuke from Jesus. Scholars point out that these two churches seem to be experiencing a particular wave of persecution and pressure, either from Jewish synagogues or the mounting Roman suspicion that those who follow the politics of Jesus don't make for good followers of the politics of Caesar. So these commentators point out that Jesus pours praise on these churches' staunch resistance to persecution. Yet while that might be true, I can't help but wonder as I read those letters if those churches aren't particularly small and even particularly vulnerable. There's this sense in politics that when you don't have that much power, you can quite easily be flattened, overwhelmed, rejected, or ignored. So Jesus does not contain a rebuke for these two churches, but there's still this urgency in his encouragement. Keep going, Jesus will say. The pressures around you are very real. The suffering and tribulations are indeed intense. The battle for power in politics is very pitched. Yet do not give in to the temptation to be broken by the politics of Caesar you find yourself in. So let's take a closer look at these seven letters and continue to unpack these three temptations. The first three letters are going to be written to the three big cities of the province of Asia, which is now modern-day Turkey. This province of Asia was a big deal for the Roman government in John's time. It really was an economic hub of industry. And in this province, the three biggest cities undeniably were Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, the first three letters that Jesus will write to. Ephesus is going to be addressed in Revelation 2, 2 to 7. And at first, the tone seems positive. This is Ephesus 2, verse 2, all the way to verse 5. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. To pause here, this really is one of the themes of all seven letters. I mean, it's kind of amazing that we're 50 years in to the movement of Jesus, but already Christians are politically weary. There is this patience and toil that is required of us. There is a long suffering, 
a testing, and this constant threat that teaching is going to lead us astray. Yet Jesus isn't finished. Here's what he says next in verse 4 to 5. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Jesus does not pull any punches in this first letter. Ephesus was known for its dominant temple scene. There was this massive temple to Artemis, constantly throwing festivals, frequent games, and Ephesus was especially revered as this bed of emperor worship. There's going to be a special temple specifically dedicated to whoever the emperor is at the time. And so if you lived in Ephesus, you could go to this temple and quite literally offer sacrifices to domination with the expression, for my Lord and for my God who has brought peace on earth. You just have to wonder that we're not given a whole host of details. What part of this scene might have been pulling the Ephesians away from their first love and inviting them to blend instead with this commitment to the politics of Caesar? What was it that dragged their gaze? Jesus says, finally, as a verse of encouragement in verse 7 He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Every letter will close with a statement like this from Jesus. Every letter will borrow a different image, rich in the power that it conveys, to the one who overcomes. This person will receive the full promises of God. In particular, in this letter, Jesus is going to close with the fruit of the tree of life in the paradise, or in the Greek, quite literally, in the paradisos, the garden of God. I love the wooing that Jesus is doing here in his politics. Jesus is not afraid to offer us something if we can overcome temptation and embrace instead his politics of love. In fact, Jesus is going to offer us the very life in the paradise, life in the garden of God. Yet the challenge is, will we, instead of overcoming, simply give in? Will we blend? Will we let slip our first love rather than overcome with Jesus? That's the first letter. The next is to the church in Smyrna. Now, ironically, while Smyrna as a city was quite large, second only to emphasis, as I mentioned, the church in Smyrna was likely quite small. And it seems from the way this letter describes them that they currently are suffering, especially persecution under local Jewish leadership. Jesus is going to empathetically acknowledge in verse 12 this report. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Smyrna was known as a city of great wealth, yet the Christians Jesus is writing to are quite literally impoverished and possibly even poor. Often such political ironies occur. Though Americans are viewed as immensely wealthy, many of us are in fact quite poor. Yet even worse, the very community of the synagogue, which should have been allies against the politics of Caesar, have actually turned their back on the followers of Jesus. This verse will later be terribly abused in anti-Semitic ways across the history of the church 
that is clearly not its purpose at all here. Of course, the Jewish people are deeply loved by God and are his chosen and elect people. Yet this is precisely what makes the politics of Smyrna that much more painful. The very religious institutions that should challenge the politics of Caesar are being used as vehicles of the devil, the accuser, to overwhelm those committed to the politics of Jesus. The naming done by Jesus here to call the synagogue that of Satan was never intended to be used in animosity towards the Jewish people, but instead was offered in wisdom to distinguish the pressures the Christians were feeling from the leadership of the synagogue that was not truly reflective of God's heart towards them. Jesus is going to speak plainly, however, in realistic terms, that though this pressure is real, overcoming might not look like escaping the suffering that Smyrna is enduring. Jesus will say in verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. The devil is going to throw some of you into prison, and you will be tested for ten days, and you will have tribulation. There's a pensive truth here to the politics of Jesus. If Jesus is willing on the one hand to woo the church in Ephesus in love, he is also willing on the other to name our suffering in honesty. The call to withstand the temptation of Caesar is going to be a costly call. It may even culminate in your life. Jesus ends the letter in verse 10 this way, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. If the first temptation of the church described in Ephesus is to blend, the second temptation for the church in Smyrna is to simply break, to be overcome. Yet Jesus sets before both a vision of the eternal city with a garden and a crown, if only we can follow in the politics of Jesus and overcome the temptations that are around us. This leads to our third letter, to Pergamum, where Jesus yet again picks up critique, this time again on the temptation of the church to blend with the politics of Caesar. This is how the letter opens in verse 12. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I love here that just in case you forgot John's earlier mention in chapter 1, that the vision he sees of Jesus is a Jesus with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, John reminds Pergamum that they are about to meet the Jesus who wields a sword. Jesus says this, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antiochus, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, this is one of those verses where a lot is happening and it would be easy to become overwhelmed. We can't be sure exactly what Jesus is referring to, yet many scholars think when Jesus talks about Satan's throne, he's referring specifically to Pergamum's massive, huge throne-like altar called Zeus the Savior, whose sculptures interestingly included many serpents surrounding this monumental altered court. So you can actually find pictures of this today if you search Zeus the Savior and Pergamum. You'll notice that it looks kind of like a throne. It was going to be 120 feet wide and 112 feet deep, and the podium in a sort of altar-like state is going to be nearly 18 feet high. So in this altar-like shape, the size and the hill it was located on, 
which most scholars note was surrounded with lots of other temples for pagan worship. And especially with all these serpents sort of sculpted into the altar side, scholars think Jesus is referring to this hotbed of pagan worship as the throne of Satan. It's vivid and keeps insisting that we don't quite have the right eyes to see the political world we find ourselves in. Imagine if, instead of viewing it as a shopping mall or as the football field, you instead felt named with these political realities, the field of war, the box of idolatry. This is what Jesus is offering to the church. And even though Antiochus, likely one of the local followers of Jesus, was killed, the praise Jesus gives is that the church in Pergamum endured. Yet Jesus' critique will now cut in fiercely from the side. This is going to be verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so what's going on with this warning? Undoubtedly, Balaam is a code name for whoever the false teacher was that was proximate to the church in Pergamum and who seemed to be leading astray the people of God. In the Bible, and more clearly in Jewish tradition, Balaam was acting out of greed for money. Balaam knew implicitly that the only way to woo Israel out of God's favor would be to tempt them into sin. Specifically, Balaam is going to offer sexual immorality and food offered to idols in order to woo Israel away and thus evoke God's wrath with Israel. Now, there's a really fascinating point to be made about food offered to idols, its connection to Balaam, and the circumstance of the church in Pergamum. In the Roman pagan world, food was offered to idols all the time. Much of the meat sold in the marketplaces were excess from pagan worship rituals and often had been offered to other pagan gods. However, even business was intertwined with food sacrificed to idols. Most trades formed into guilds. So if you were a silversmith, you would join the silversmith guild. In fact, it's this very guild that the Apostle Paul would get into trouble with in Acts 19. Yet these guilds, in order to conduct business and foster loyalty, would hold these mandatory banquets. They were often called guild banquets, with food offered to the gods of your industry. And these banquets often spilled over into drunkenness and sexual immorality. So for Christians in all Roman cities, there was this pressure and huge temptation. If you were part of a guild, as you needed to be if you wanted to get ahead in your industry, do you go to the banquets? Do you consume food offered to idols while risking other behaviors that could result as well? Or do you not attend the guilds and risk losing your job, possibly even your trade, for the sake of your faith? I mean, these are hard questions, hard political questions, because these are questions of meaning. It was one thing to place your faith in Jesus. It's another thing to stop placing your faith in your trade guild, in your job. Yet Jesus wants them to know there's more going on here politically than meets the eye. To Smyrna, he had just said, to the one who overcomes, they will not be hurt by the second death. And now to the church in Pergamum, he promises, to the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, 
that no one knows except the one who receives it. I mean, this is all about food and the table for the church in Pergamum. This is about the feast of meaning. And Jesus says, I, I am the one who gives hidden manna to the one who is searching for purpose, for belonging, for allegiance and identity. Jesus says, I will give you a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one else knows. Now, I'm sure you've got to be wondering, what is the white stone? Most commentators go back and forth on what it means. But as I read these passages, I'm more struck that the average churchgoer in Pergamum, who's trying to get their head around abandoning their trade guild, who's trying to wrestle with the seriousness it would take to stop blending with the politics of Caesar and instead commit themselves fully to the politics of Jesus, for them, if they're going to turn their back on the security, the purposefulness, the job that's waiting for them in their trade guild, what is required is something even more firm, foundational, and secure. Jesus is saying, I am the one who has the white stone with your true name. I am the one to whom you can truly belong. If I were to take a step back from these first three letters, we're going to move quickly through the final four. I can't help but notice that there's this increasing wedge that begins to appear between the politics of Caesar and the politics of Jesus. The politics of Caesar are always about more. More money, more food, more comfort, more power. And the Roman Empire churned on the basis that no matter who was in charge, you could always trust the people would get aroused by some new gladiatorial game. You could always trust that people would be appeased with fewer taxes that let them keep more money. And you could always trust that people would be motivated by the promise that good trade guilds meant good banquets and good sex no matter what the consequences or cost. There really was this Balaam-like quality and insight to the politics of Caesar. If you can woo the people with those sort of base-level passions and pleasures, eventually they will give up on God. Now, I brought Noah Yuval Harari at the beginning of the book up because he, like many others, has a political critique of our current state of modernity. If modernity is a contract where we gave up meaning for power, Harari is going to go on to suggest that the politics of Caesar today are worked out in this way. This is another quote. The modern pursuit of power is fueled by the alliance between scientific progress and economic growth. End quote. In fact, capitalism and the economic philosophy committed to the relentless pursuit of growth is the very contract Harari was talking about that fuels our modern willingness to trade meaning for power. If we're going to talk about power, if we're going to talk about idolatry, then we have to talk about capitalism. Have you ever paused to reflect on what living in a capitalistic society has done to you? Now, to be clear, I'm not advocating here for an abandonment of capitalism in favor of some other system. Other ideologies have their own concerns. I am, however, here to reflect on the politics of capitalism and how they shape the politics of Caesar we find ourselves living in. Harari notes that there are three driving principles for politicians to keep capitalism going. First, politicians say, when we produce more, we can consume more and thereby raise our standard of living. This, of course, feels true on an intuitive level. If the GDP goes up, then my income will go up, and I can buy more things and hopefully be happier. For instance, if we produce more cars, we can buy newer cars, 
and therefore all raise our standards of living. I'll be honest with you, for most of my life I have driven used cars, and they are perfectly functional. They get you from A to B, and I didn't notice anything wrong with the cars I was driving at the time I was driving them. But then I had the opportunity to buy a newer car. In fact, one that was only one year old. And man, it was a nicer car. Everything actually worked for a change. The car had Bluetooth and heated seats, remote ignition. Suddenly, I found myself unable to return to my old car. Suddenly, it was like I started to love new cars. In fact, it was like I needed new cars. And every year when another new car model came out, I started to wonder, maybe I should upgrade my car to that car. This is the building pressure of the first principle of capitalism. When we produce more, we consume more, and thereby we can raise our standard of living. But Harari notes that this first principle inevitably is going to lead to a second principle. It's this. If we have to produce more, to consume more, then every year we have to grow more if we're going to keep up with our growing needs. This, of course, becomes a problem, because the Earth doesn't just keep producing more for us exponentially. To build more cars, we need to build new factories and take out new loans and make more money from the limited resources in our sectors of work. And while some of us can keep this up, if all of us try to live by this growth mindset, inevitably our profits are going to start to slow. This leads politicians to the crippling realization of the third principle in capitalism, again expressed by Harari. He says this, If the economy doesn't grow and the pie remains the same, the only way the poor can get more is by taking something from the rich. Now, this actually becomes a devastating negative principle for leaders in capitalism. The rich, who are most often in power, do not want to give anything away from the growth that they have accumulated. So in order to appease the poor, the rich have to find a way to keep the pie growing. At the end of the day, capitalism is about the intense driver of growth. Capitalism is about the worship of more. And whether we've realized it or not, our politics in the West, and particularly the politics in America, drive each of us towards this very worship of more, that the pie can and should keep growing, that we do deserve that new car, and that no one should take from us what we have earned for ourselves. Now, I am not an expert on capitalism, nor am I saying capitalism is all bad, but capitalism presents a very Balaam-like problem to humanity. Because humans, once they taste a little more, always seem to want more after that. We are idol-making factories, after all. Interestingly, Harari points out that the economic growth principle of capitalism is not merely an American or even Western problem anymore. It is a growing global crisis. He says this, Today, Hindu revivalists, pious Muslims, Japanese nationalists, and Chinese communists may declare their adherence to very different values and goals, but they have all come to believe that economic growth is the key to realizing their disparate goals. What Harari is saying is that we are now connected around a global driving principle of capitalism. It is as if Balaam has whispered in the ears of every nation, and the politics of Caesar continues to say that if we just give up meaning, then we can get more of everything else. 
I bring capitalism to our attention because I think if we want to follow the politics of Jesus, if we want to read the book of Revelation closely, we're seeing that Jesus is not committed to offering a gospel of more to his followers. Economic growth is not promised. Sex and food are confronted with repentance, not offered as the prize. I think for us reading these letters today, the politics of capitalism continue beckoning to the church, just as the politics of Caesar were beckoning back then. That if you were to just affirm capitalism, blend with capitalism, or even just break under capitalism, then we could all stay in power, even if we lose a little meaning along the way. Yet Jesus is offering a different vision for a different people. Let's return to the last four churches. To Tyatir, the fourth church, we're told, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, has this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Tyatira was especially known in the ancient world for its abundance of guilds and for being a hub of industry, much like Detroit would be associated with car manufacturing. And so again, you see this allure, the politics of capitalism, the politics of power that are sitting right there tempting the Tyatiran church. Yet Jesus will say to this church who finds themselves facing the potential blending with the politics of Caesar, Jesus will say to the one who overcomes and who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Love this offer from Jesus that cuts to the depths of our desires. It's as if Jesus is saying, you want real power? Then come submit under my rule, the true king of kings, and receive my authority. To the fifth church in Sardis, Jesus will write, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. For some reason, I always resonate with Sardis especially. This is the church who must be confronted for the ways in which she has been affirming the politics of Caesar. This is a church who has lost her way, who's lost her meaning, who isn't even giving into extravagant sins, but just simply has no life left. Jesus is going to say, wake up, wake up to the world, wake up to the work I still have for you, wake up to the powers of Caesar that have kept you numb and drawn away. At the end of this letter, Jesus will promise, To the one who overcomes, they will be clothed in white garments, and I will never block out their name from the book of life, but I will confess their name before my Father, before his angels. Here we have new clothes for a newly woken people. To the Philadelphians, the sixth church, yet again like Smyrna, beset by struggles and persecutions, Jesus only has encouragement to offer. He's going to say this, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I love this is the promise of true power behind the politics of Jesus. So often, Caesar seems to offer us more and growth as the only way, yet Jesus is contrasting the out 
of Caesar with the open door that is Jesus. No one can close the door on the Philadelphians who want to follow Jesus. No one will resist those who choose to walk the way of the politics of Jesus. At the close of the letter, Jesus says, To the one who overcomes, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall they go out of it, and I will write on them the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and my own name. Those who walk through the door that is Jesus, who resist the temptation to break under the politics of Caesar, will become instead the very pillars of the city that God is building, the very temple of God. Finally, in the seventh letter to Laodicea, the letter where Jesus will famously say that they are neither hot nor cold, and that he wishes to spit them out. What is often missed is the very politically loaded phrase Jesus will offer in regards to how the church should think economically. Jesus is going to say, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and then the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and to solve, to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. When you dig into the background of Laodicea, you find that they have recently been growing in the Roman Empire because of the advances they've made in banking, textiles, and even this medical school that was producing eye salve made of Phygian powder. I mean, do you hear the irony? The capitalism of Laodicea has swelled their own self-sufficiency and pride. Yet here Jesus is saying, can I teach you to trade in another good? Can I teach you to depend on a different power? Can I teach you where meaning is truly to be found? Can I teach you, O lampstand, how to truly shine? These snapshots provide a glimmer of the very real pressures that these seven ancient churches were navigating and that we continue to navigate today. The three temptations to affirm Caesar, to blend with Caesar, or to break under Caesar reflect a church that continues to struggle with a crisis of identity in America. It reflects us, you and especially me, as Christians who struggle day in and day out with what to make of our relationship to Caesar, to capitalism, to the hounding idolatries that tempt us just as much as they tempted Christians back then. How do Christians walk in a culture dominated by the economic impulse to grow above all else? How do we vote when both political parties are interested in the power and advancement of their own policies and agendas? How do we live in cities that continue to tempt us, that if we were just to join them in worshiping other gods, we too could get ahead as they have gotten ahead and finally find that life of fullness, happiness, and power that America and any other heir to the Roman ethos is offering? As I've already said, capitalism is not all bad. It has offered many advantages, and as a system, it's so tightly wound around the whole of our global world that it could not be undone if we tried. Nor am I saying that our participation in the economy to make money and facilitate trade is wrong or bad. These churches faced many other complex factors, including tensions with the Jewish community they found themselves near, other false teachings, persecution in some places, compromise in others. Yet when it comes to the politics of Jesus, I do think there is space here in this episode to ask what we might need to repent of in order that we too, with these ancient churches, could overcome. We continue to be surrounded by the temptations of Caesar. 
those political pressures to compromise that are uniquely present to us in our late modern capitalistic society that happens to leave us as the wealthiest country at the wealthiest point of our national existence. So I conclude practically with the question of politics that we've mentioned in our first episode. In light of these letters, what are the politics of Jesus for Christians who struggle with the temptations of Caesar? What are the practical public actions we can do to affirm our allegiance to Jesus and to live for the good of the city and the communities we find ourselves in? I'm going to be asking this question every week. And my proposal this week comes from pondering what the pastors of each of these churches that receive these letters might have practically done to encourage their communities, to strengthen them as they prepared them for the temptations that they were facing. When one lives in a culture so geared towards idolatrous worship, so geared toward the accumulation of power, so geared towards growth in a capitalistic mindset, the only way to steady your heart and to prepare for these temptations is through the discipline of communal fasting. Now sit with me here for this on a moment. Go back to the ancient world. What is the ultimate sign of resistance? to a banquet guild meal of abundance that's overflowing into drinking and sexual immorality? Well, fasting, the intentional conscious choice to restrain and resist what you otherwise depend on and need to survive. Now, as I've pastorally talked to people about fasting, there is not a single person I talk to who doesn't dread it. I get it. For the longest time, I avoided fasting at all costs. It just seemed bizarre to me, unnecessary. Perhaps not even Christian. I mean, why would a God of grace require such ridiculous acts of denial and piety? I say that just to acknowledge it's hard. In fact, communal fasting is very hard, and you might need to explore it more before you're ready to pick up this profound political action. But consider the power of a communal fast. Food certainly could be something that you fast from together with your community. I had a chance in high school to participate in a 30-hour famine with other high schoolers. That's an organization that raises money and awareness about the real threat of hunger and malnutrition across the developing world. And I have to say, it was powerful. My body felt what my mind had only thought about before, and it has stuck with me all the way to the present. Imagine if you and your community had the imagination to engage creatively around fasting. Imagine if you not only fasted from food, but perhaps considered fasting communally together from smartphones for a season to resist the draw of popularity and to advocate for embodied relationships. Or imagine if you fasted together from purchasing new clothes, maybe for a month or two months, as you gathered and gave away old clothes to those in need. Such actions would make public political statements, even as they trained the hearts of your whole community in gratitude, generosity, and contentment. These actions would be an act of resistance, even just for that window towards the capitalistic draw that promises more and more. Now, there's a lot more to be said around healthy community fasting versus religious or unhealthy fasting. There's a lot more that we could talk about around discerning and sharing what a public act of resistance in communal fasting could look like for the good of your community, and how to use fasting as a regular discipline that not only makes a public statement, but also deepens your intimacy with God 
and prepares you to overcome cultural pressures and temptations. But I hope if you're listening to this, that perhaps all we need to accomplish in this episode is to stir your imagination. We live in a culture that has invited us to sign a contract, a contract where we gave up meaning for the sake of power, a contract that supported the spread of our idolatries as opposed to committing us to the lordship of Jesus, a culture in which capitalism and the promise and pursuit of more has consumed our hearts and our minds above all else. When we live in such a culture, is it possible that fasting and fasting together could be the very act of political resistance that supports the good of our communities? By acknowledging our dependence on God and by resisting the mindset of more, even by resisting the power that those goods have over our lives, we declare to the world around us a life lived in dependence on our God, a life lived free from the temptations that surround us, and a life that's attempting to live out our love for our neighbors as we follow in the politics of Jesus. What if you could directly resist the politics of Caesar by communal fasting, which instead proclaims that you already have enough because Jesus already is king? May you return to the word this week, ponder these letters, read closely through Revelation 2-3, to hear the voice of Jesus speak even to your own life and to the church you find yourself in. But most of all, may you see This one, the Ancient of Days, with burning eyes and voice like roaring waters, who even now rules over our lives. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace.